Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work, as well as some of the work that they love. This episode, we'll be celebrating Bloomsday, which is this Saturday when it's airing, a celebration of James Joyce's famous novel, Ulysses. Featured today is Michael Allen Zell, author of the Bobby Delery series, and today he'll be reading sections from Ulysses as well as speaking about it. Take a listen. This is Michael Allen Sell. I am happy to be here at WRBH for Bloomsday. And um, before I read a little bit from Ulysses by James Joyce, so to start off, I'll give a little bit of background for those who don't know. Uh, June 16th is celebrated around the world as Bloomsday uh, for the sole reason that the book uh, Ulysses takes place on June 16th, the entirety of the book. And when I say the entirety of it, this is not a short book. Uh, my edition of it, in fact, is 768 pages. So 768 pages that all take uh, place on one particular day. So are these the, uh, the high events of the day, um, the, the, the exciting things? Yes, and beyond that, it's anything and everything. So uh, if you remember a few decades back when people were praising Seinfeld, a TV show for being about nothing, now people praise Atlanta, Donald Glover's show for being about nothing. Guess what? This is a whole book of over 700 pages about nothing and more and done in an incredible literary way. Um, some people think um, that it's, it's the first modernist novel. There definitely would have been more uh, uh, books prior to that, centuries before that, in fact. But um, by virtue of, of maybe a love story at the core of it, which is ironically goes against the, the uh, modernist thing a little bit. Um, that may be one of the reasons that, that Ulysses is, is still beloved around the world um, because June 16th was chosen as the day because that was when uh, James Joyce met the lady, uh, Nora Barnacle, um, who would be his wife. And so he chose this as sort of a, um, a loving reminder of that. Um, and you get different perspectives in the book. Um, one of those um, is in fact um, this lady's uh, in the book. So um, what's incredible about Ulysses, uh, you know, beyond the fact that a book has lasted this long, most books don't, you know, make it beyond the year they come out, much less five, ten, much less better part of a century, um, is technique. He he uses so many different styles in this book, even chapter by chapter, and it's it is so interesting for whatever that your that your curiosity is for a way that somebody could write um it's in here in some fashion so it's a big book full of of a lot of big ideas and in some cases a lot of big words um he is really masterful in um what are called portmanteau portmanteau words so it's combined words together uh, he's masterful in use of sentences some longer some shorter depending on the effect that he wants to carry out so this was really an intricate intricately plotted book um, beyond, you know, most, uh, nowadays or even at that time, of course. So, so what I'm going to do is, is read from, uh, a few parts, uh, from the book that I, uh, chose. The, uh, first one of those is going to be at the beginning. And generally that's what people do, uh, at Bloomsday, no matter where they're at, uh, in the, uh, not just the U S but again, around the world is just read from the book. Um, a lot of times they're drinking. Um, I'm happy to uh, do this sober. Um, but, uh, I guess I should mention the events of the book uh, happen in uh, Dublin, Dublin, Ireland. So that's that's kind of the, the locale where this whole thing takes place. So again, I'm going to start at the beginning uh, to give you just a second. If you're following along, 
Um, again, we are right at the beginning of Ulysses by James Joyce, and it is Bloomsday, June 16th. Stately, plump, Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown, ungirdled, was sustained gently behind him by the mild morning air. He held the bowl aloft and intoned, In Troibo ad altare dei. Halted, he peered down the dark winding stairs and called up coarsely, Come up, Kinch. Come up, you fearful Jesuit. Solemnly, he came forward and mounted the round gun rest. He faced about and blessed gravely thrice the tower, the surrounding country, and the awaking mountains. Then, catching sight of Stephen Dedalus, he bent towards him and made rapid crosses in the air, gurgling in his throat and shaking his head. Stephen Dedalus, displeased and sleepy, leaned his arms on the top of the staircase and looked coldly at the shaking, gurgling face that blessed him, equine in its length, and at the light, untonsured hair, grained and hued like pale oak. Buck Mulligan peeped an instant under the mirror and then covered the bull smartly. Back to the barracks, he said sternly. He added in a preacher's tone, For this, O dearly beloved, is the genuine Christine, body and soul and blood and owns. Slow music, please. Shut your eyes, gents, one moment. A little trouble about those white corpuscles. Silence all. He peered sideways up and gave a long, low whistle of call, then paused a while in rapt attention, his even white teeth glistening here and there with gold points. Chrysotomos, two strong, shrill whistles answered through the calm. Thanks, old chap, he cried briskly. That will do nicely. Switch off the current, will you? He skipped off the gun rest and looked gravely at his watcher, gathering about his legs the loose folds of his gown. The plump shadowed face and sullen oval jowl recalled a prelate, patron of arts in the Middle Ages. A pleasant smile broke quietly over his lips. The mockery of it all, he said gaily. Your absurd name, an ancient Greek. He pointed his finger in friendly jest and went over the parapet laughing to himself. Stephen Dedalus stepped up, followed him wearily halfway, and sat down on the edge of the gun rest, watching him still as he propped his mirror on the parapet, dipped the brush in the bowl, and lathered cheeks and neck. Buck Mulligan's gay voice went on. My name is absurd, too. Malachi Mulligan? Two dactyls? But it has a Hellenic ring, hasn't it? Tripping and sunny like the buck himself? We must go to Athens. Will you come if I can get the ant to fork out 20 quid? He laid the brush aside and laughing with delight cried, Will he come? The jejun Jesuit? Seizing, he began to shave with care. Tell me, Mulligan, Stephen said quietly. Yes, my love? How long is Haynes going to stay in this tower? Buck Mulligan showed a shaven cheek over his right shoulder. God, he is dreadful, he said frankly. A ponderous Saxon. He thinks you're not a gentleman. God, these bloody English, bursting with money and indigestion. Because he comes from Oxford. You know, Daedalus, you have the real Oxford manner. He can't make you out. Oh, my name for you is the best. Kinch, the knife blade. 
He shaved warily over his chin. He was raving all night about a Black Panther, Stephen said. Where's his gun case? A woeful lunatic, Mulligan said. Were you in a funk? I was, Stephen said, with energy and growing fear. Out here in the dark with a man I don't know, raving and moaning to himself about shooting a Black Panther? You save men from drowning. I'm not a hero, however. If he stays on here, I am off. Buck Mulligan frowned at the lather on his razor blade. He hopped down from his perch and began to search his trousers' pockets hastily. Scudder, he cried thickly. He came over to the gun rest and, thrusting a hand into Stephen's upper pocket, said, Lend us a loan of your nose rag to wipe my razor. Stephen suffered him to pull out and hold up on show by its corner a dirty, crumpled handkerchief. Buck Mulligan wiped the razor blade neatly. Then, gazing over the handkerchief, he said, The bard's nose rag, a new art color for our Irish poets, snot green. You can almost taste it, can't you? He mounted to the parapet again and gazed out over Dublin Bay, his fair oak-pale hair stirring slightly. God, he said quietly, isn't the sea what Algy calls it, a gray-sweet mother, the snot-green sea? The sea? Epi oinapa pantan. Ah, Daedalus the Greeks, I must teach you. You must read them in the original. Talada, Talada, she is our great sweet mother. Come and look. Stephen stood up and went over to the parapet. Leaning on it, he looked down on the water and on the mail boat clearing the harbor mouth of Kingstown. Our mighty mother, Buck Mulligan said. He turned abruptly, his great searching eyes from the sea to Stephen's face. The ant thinks you killed your mother, he said. That's why she won't let me have anything to do with you. Someone killed her, Stephen said gloomily. You could have knelt down, Kinch, when your dying mother asked you, Buck Mulligan said. I'm hyperborean as much as you, but to think of your mother begging you with her last breath to kneel down and pray for her, and you refused? There is something sinister in you. He broke off and lathered again lightly his farther cheek. A tolerant smile curled his lips. But a lovely mummer, he murmured to, him, murmured to himself. Kinch, the loveliest mummer of them all. He shaved evenly and with care in silence, seriously. Stephen, an elbow rested on the jagged granite, leaned his palm against his brow and gazed at the fraying edge of his shiny black coat sleeve. Pain, that was not yet the pain of love, fretted his heart. Silently in a dream she had, co she had come to him after her death, her wasted body within its loose brown grave clothes, giving off an odor of wax and rosewood, her breath that had been upon him mute, reproachful, a faint odor of wetted ashes. Across the threadbare cuff edge he saw the sea hailed as a great sweet mother by the well-fed voice beside him. The ring of bay and skyline held a dull green mass of liquid. A bowl of white china had stood beside her deathbed, holding the green sluggish bile which she had torn up from her rotting liver by fits of loud groaning vomiting. Buck Mulligan wiped his razor blade. Ah, poor dog's body, he said in a kind voice. I must give you a shirt and a few nose rags. How are the second-hand breeks? They fit well enough, Stephen answered. Buck Mulligan attacked the hollow beneath his underlip. And to step away from this for just a moment. So you notice what's going on. One man is shaving, and while he's shaving, they're having this conversation. So again, what I'd mentioned about uh, a book about everything and nothing, um, the first few pages are um, 
you know, the narrative is continuing, but at the same time, um, someone is shaving his face. Uh, Joyce is really uh, key in this with um, bodily fluids. So uh, mucus, uh, someone vomiting, different uh, things like that. Um, at the time, and probably still in some cases, but at the time that was uh, certainly thought to be scandalous. You, you just didn't uh, talk about such things. Um, those were, those were the, the type of things that were tucked away. And he has that all you know, out in print. So I'll continue. And I'll mention, if you, if you are following along, um, the edition that I have is um, the original Random House one that has the big U on the dust jacket and has the big JJ for Joyce on the book itself. So this is the top of page eight. Or, if you don't have this edition, this is when Buck Mulligan is attacking the, that little hollow um, right under his lip for his shaving. The mockery of it, he said contentedly, Second leg they should be. God knows what poxy bowsy left them off. I have a lovely pair with a hair stripe gray. You'll look spiffing in them. I'm not joking, Kinch. You look well when you're dressed. Thanks, Stephen said. I can't wear them if they are gray. He can't wear them, Buck Mulligan told his face in the mirror. Etiquette is etiquette. He kills his mother, but he can't wear gray trousers. He folded his razor neatly and with stroking pulps of fingers felt the smooth skin. Stephen turned his gaze from the sea into the plump face with its smoke-blue mobile eyes. And to stop there real quick, um, on some of these words, uh, smoke-blue is, is, for example, there's no space in between. So in reading this book, it even looks different than other books because he's, he's combining words, in some cases creating new words from, from two adjacent words that wouldn't be next to each other, but also in making two words that commonly would be found, um, A and then B, by combining them. And it, it gives the, the book certainly a different kind of, of flow. So I'll read just a little bit more from this and we'll go on to uh, another part. That fellow I was with in the ship last night, said Buck Mulligan, says you have GPI. He's up in Dottyville with Connell Old Norman, general paralysis of the insane. He swept the mirror a half circle in the air to flash the tidings abroad in sunlight now radiant on the sea. His curling, shaving, shaven lips laughed and the edges of his white glittering teeth. Laughter seized all his strong, well-knit trunk. Look at yourself, he said, you dreadful bard. Stephen bent forward and peered at the mirror held out to him, cleft by a crooked crack on end. As he and others see me, who chose this face for me, this dog's body to rid of vermin? It asked me too. I pinched it out of the skivvies room, Buck Mulligan said. It does her all right. The ant always keeps plain-looking servants for Malachi. Lead him not into temptation, and her name is Ursula. Laughing again, he brought the mirror away from Stephen's peering eyes. And let's, let's stop right there for this point. So next part that I wanted to read, um, I'm going to skip ahead. If you're following in the same edition, um, this is on page 70. So this is a uh, part where he's talking about tea, as in uh, tea that you would drink. I thought this was, this was interesting. Um, and this will be uh, about two, three paragraphs. Short paragraphs in the, the uh, James Joyce version. In Westland Row, he halted before the window of the Belfast and Oriental Tea Company and read the legends of lead-papered packets. Choice blend, finest quality, family tea, rather warm. Tea. Must get some from Tom Kernan. Couldn't ask him at a funeral, though. While his eyes still blandly, excuse me, still red blandly, he took off his hat, quietly inhaling his hair oil, and sent his right hand with slow grace 
over his brow and hair. Very warm morning. Under their dropped lids, his eyes found the tiny bow of the leather headband inside his high-grade hat, just there. His right hand came down into the bowl of his hat. His fingers found quickly a card behind the headband and, and transferred it to his waistcoat pocket. So warm. His right hand once more, more slowly, went over again. Choice blend, made of the finest Ceylon brands, the Far East. Lovely spot it must be, the garden of the world. Big lazy leaves to float about on, cactuses, flowery meads, snaky lianas, they call them. Wonder is it like that, those singalese lobbing around in the sun in dolce far niente, not doing a hand's turn all day, sleep six months out of twelve, too hot to quarrel, influence of the climate, lethargy, flowers of idleness, the air feeds most, azotes, hothouse and botanic gardens, sensitive plants, water lilies, petals too tired to, sleeping sickness in the air, walk on rose leaves, imagine trying to eat tripe and cow heel. Where was the chap I saw in that picture somewhere? Ah, in the Dead Sea floating on his back, reading a book with a parasol open. Couldn't sink if you tried. So thick with salt. Because, because the weight of the water. No, the weight of the body in the water is equal to the weight of the... Or is it the volume is equal of the weight? It's a law, something like that. Vance in high school cracking his finger joints teaching. The college curriculum. Cracking curriculum. What is weight really when you say the weight? 32 feet per second. Per second. Law of falling bodies. Per second, per second. They all fall to the ground. The earth, it's the force of gravity. Of the earth is the weight. He turned away and sauntered across the road. How did she walk with her sausages? Like that something. As he walked, he took the folded Freeman from his side pocket, unfolded it, rolled it lengthwise in a baton, and tapped it at every sauntering step against his trouser leg. Careless air, just drop in to see. Per second, per second. Per second for every second, it means. From the curbstone, he darted a keen glance through the door of the post office. Too late box, post here. No one in. He handed the card through the brass grill. Are there any letters for me, he asked. While the postmistress searched a pigeonhole, he gazed at the recruiting poster with soldiers of all arms on parade and held the top of his baton against his nostrils, smelling fresh printed rag paper. No answer, probably. Went too far last time. And I'll stop there for this point. Um, something to mention on this in particular, uh, in this section, and this is throughout as well, but um, this book is, is known for its uh, stream of consciousness. So it's, it's, and it's not just a simply, simply the case that he's um, you know, saying whatever comes to mind and it's random and it's this and that. Um, he has a certain number of things that are throughout the book actually reinforced, come up again, come up in different ways in the same way that any of us you know, throughout our day would have some things that are, are the top of our mind. Some things will come up maybe as you um, are interacting with somebody at work, on the street, you know, in, in a restaurant, any kind of business. And then there are other things that are in the subconscious that, that also come up that we don't even know we're thinking about it. And all of a sudden, what was, was kind of buried in subconscious comes to top of mind. 
So he's, he's really masterful at how he um, displays those throughout the book. So to really get that, and again, this is a, a large book, over 750 pages, um, you have to read it as much as possible in a short amount of time. And in, in doing so, you, know, you would have at the same time this entering your own conscious, conscious and uh, subconscious. So um, last part that I'm going to read is uh, page 342, if you're reading the um, uh, early Random House version that I'm reading, and this is about Gertie McDowell. Gertie McDowell, who was seated near her companions, lost in thought, gazing far away into the distance, was in very truth as fair a specimen of winsome Irish girlhood as one could wish to see. She was pronounced beautiful by all who knew her, though, as folks often said, she was more a Giltrap than a McDowell. Her figure was slight and graceful, inclining even to fragility. But those iron jelloids she had been taking of late had done her a world of good much better than the widow Welch's female pills, and she was much better of those discharges she used to get in that tired feeling. The wax and pallor of her face was almost spiritual, and its ivory-like purity through her rosebud mouth was a genuine Cupid's bow, Greekly perfect. Her hands were of finely veined alabaster with tapering fingers, and as white as lemon juice, and queen of ointments could make them, though it was not true that she used to wear kid gloves in bed, or take a milk foot bath either. Bertha Supple told that once to, to Edie Boardman, a deliberate lie, when she was black out at daggers drawn with Gertie. The girl chums had, of course, their little tiffs from time to time, like the rest of the mortals. And she told her not let on whatever she did that it was her that told her or she'd never speak to her again. No. Honor where honor is due. There was an innate refinement, a languid, queenly hauteur about Gertie, which was unmistakably evidenced in her delicate hands and high-arched instep. Had kind fate, but willed her to be born a gentlewoman of high degree in her own right, and had she only received the benefit of a good education, Gertie McDowell might easily have held her own beside any lady in the land and have seen herself exquisitely gowned with jewels on her brow and patrician suitors at her feet, vying with one another to pay their devoirs to her. Mayhap it was this, the love that might have been, that lent to her softly featured face, at whiles a look, tense with suppressed meaning, that imparted a strange yearning tendency to the, blue, to the beautiful eyes a charm few could resist. Why have women such eyes of witchery? Gertie's were of the bluest Irish blue, set off by lustrous lashes and dark expressive brows. Time was when those brows were not so silkily seductive. It was Madame Vera Verity, directress of the Woman Beautiful page of the Princess Novelette, who had first advised her to try eyebrow lean, which gave that haunting expression to the eyes. So becoming in leaders of fashion, and she had never regretted it. Then there was blushing scientifically cured, and how to be tall, increase your height, and you have a beautiful face but your nose. That would suit Mrs. Diggum, because she had a button one. But Gertie's crowning glory was her wealth of wonderful hair. It was dark brown with a natural wave in it. She had cut it that very morning on account of the new moon, and it nestled about her pretty head in a profusion of luxuriant clusters and pared her nails too. Thursday for wealth, and just now at Edie's word as a telltale flush, delicate as the faintest rose bloom, crept into her cheeks. She looked so lovely in her sweet girlish shyness 
that of a surety God's fair land of Ireland did not hold her equal. For an instant she was silent with rather sad, downcast eyes. She was about to retort, but something checked the words on her tongue. Inclination prompted her to speak out. Dignity told her to be silent. The pretty lips pouted a while, but then she glanced up and broke out into a joyous little laugh, which had in it all the freshness of a young May morning. She knew right well, no one better, what made Squinty Edie say that, because of him cooling in his attentions when it was simply a lover's quarrel. As per usual, somebody's nose was out of joint about that boy that had the bicycle always riding up and down in front of her window. Only now, his father kept him in the evening, studying hard, to get an exhibition in the intermediate that was on and he was going to Trinity College to study for a doctor when he left the high school, like his brother, W.E. Wiley, who was racing in the bicycle races in Trinity College University. Little wrecked he perhaps for what she felt, that dull, aching void in her heart sometimes, piercing to the core. Yet he was young, and perchance he might learn to love her in time. They were Protestants in his family, and of course Gertie knew who came first and after him, the Blessed Virgin and then St. Joseph. But he was undeniably handsome, with an exquisite nose, and he was what he looked, every inch a gentleman, the shape of his head, too, at the back without his cap on, that she would know anywhere, something off of the common, and the way he turned the bicycle at the lamp with his hands off the bars, and also the nice perfume of those good cigarettes. And besides, they were both of a size. And that was why Edie Boardman thought she was so frightfully clever, because he didn't go and ride up and down in front of her bit of the garden. And that's where I will stop reading. So again, this is Michael Allen Zell. I've been reading from Ulysses by uh, James Joyce. Um, If you caught on a little bit later in the uh, program, June 16th is Bloomsday. It's celebrated around the world in different ways, but no matter uh, where and how it's celebrated, um, people are always reading the book. There's there's something with with any written word, um, with hearing it read aloud, Uh, But Joyce's book in particular uh, really lends itself to that, just the luxuriant language, the combined words, the flow, the different chapters, how you can randomly flip and and find, you know, so many different type of things. Um, This is the type of book, however, that it uh, benefits one to prepare because uh, often the words are uh, not those that typically follow the other words, um, as is usual for for other books and, and other writers. So he definitely keeps you on your toe. So imagine if you are um, having uh, some drinks while you're reading this, it makes it a little tricky. Um, so again, thank you for tuning in and thank you uh, WRBH for the show and for having me. I appreciate it very much. Goodbye. That was author Michael Allen Zell reading selections from Ulysses. And you've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. You can tune in every Saturday at 1 p.m. and on Mondays at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Have a very happy Bloomsday, and thanks for listening.